All right, so this morning, our text begins with the Passover. The Passover is one of those Jewish festivals that if you've read the Bible, if you've been in church, you, uh, you know the word, but you really understand it. And why are these details there? Because John in particular uses Old Testament details very frequently. And John in particular uses Old Testament references, signs, and fulfillments to help us understand the ministry of Jesus. These are not accidental details. And so as we read through the Gospel of John, we need to ask ourselves, why are these details there? And what do they have to do with Jesus and his ministry? And you need to get used to this because throughout the Gospel of John, we're going to see how John understands the Israelite history and the Jewish religion and how Christ came to fulfill it all. Because most importantly, this is important because Christ thought it was important. Because as you know, Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was not a Christian. Jesus was a Jew. He was a good Jew. He kept all of the festivals. He kept the moral law. He did everything that was expected of him as a Jew. Before we get into our text, I want to read this quote. If you're unsure about the Old Testament and you don't wonder how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together, there's a fantastic book uh, by Edith Schaefer. It's called uh, Christianity is Jewish. There's a quote she has that kind of sums this up and it will really help us as we walk through the Gospel of John. It's going to be up on the screen. She says, the Jew who becomes a Christian should be more aware and excited about his or her Jewish heritage than ever before. Because he has become a fulfilled Jew or a Bible believing Jew, really believing the Old Testament and all that is clearly fulfilled in the New Testament. The Gentile who has become a Christian should be aware that he or she is now the spiritual seed of Abraham and that all the Jewish heritage belongs in a thrilling way to him or her as the Old Testament is believed as well as the fulfillment in the New Testament. That's why every Sunday here when we do our call to worship, we generally choose something from the Old Testament. We generally tie together God's word because it is one God, one revelation, one Holy Spirit who has breathed it out through his messengers throughout the, his, throughout the history of redeeming his people. And it's important to us. And John thought it was so important to include these details. And I'm going to tell you why this morning. The sad thing is in our church today and to many of us, the Old Testament is just that. It's old. Or it's just a bunch of, of nice stories or kind of cool miracles that fit really well into children's storybooks. And they are nice stories. But the real focus of the Old Testament is who God is and what he expects from his people. Because those stories are not just stories. They're examples and signs of his very nature. And how we read those stories and how we understand the God of the Old Testament informs our worship. Because the same God who brought Abraham out of paganism, who brought the Israelites out of Exodus, is the same God who took on flesh and walked among us and cleansed the temple. And we're going to see that this morning. So as we look at a couple signs last week, Deshaun looked at the sign of the wedding at Cana. And that sign was one of abundance and transformation. That Jesus came to transform the ordinary to the extraordinary. His power in something simple as turning water into wine pointed forward to the, the fruits of his ministry. The kingdom come here on earth and the wine that we would one day drink with him in eternity. But also it is a sign of abundance. That he didn't just give them enough wine for the wedding. He gave them more than what they would ever need. 
And that is what he does who puts their faith and trust in him. And as we've seen in every week here in John, John's purpose in this gospel is so that we may believe. We're going to see that come up a couple times in this passage. But this week, Jesus comes for a different kind of sign. This is a sign of reform. Much like Josiah, when he discovered the law after being hidden for so many years, he wept and he tore his clothes because it was being distorted. It was being perverted. This is also a sign of judgment. Because contrary to what we may see in many books and Christian literature, uh, Jesus is not always friendly Jesus. He doesn't walk around with a lamb around his his shoulders 24-7. The same Jesus who heals and brings restoration also will bring judgment one day. And this is a foreshadowing of his judgment. And we're going to see that this morning. So turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 13 to 25, and then we'll walk back through it together. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. With the sheep and the oxen, he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned the tables. And he told those who sold pigeons take these things away do not make my father's house a house of trade his disciples remembered that which was written zeal for your house will consume me so the jews said to him what sign do you show us for doing these things jesus answered them destroy this temple and in three days i will raise it up the jews then said it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he raised, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning as a God created all things out of nothing. And before the foundation of all things, before you set the world on its axis, before you separated the light from the darkness, you knew us. You knew that in our hearts we would reject you and be far from you. You knew that without you there would be no hope for humanity. But you loved us. You cared for us. And you provided for your people. You provided for Noah. Provided for Abraham. Provided for Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joshua and David and Solomon and all down the line. Knowing one day you would send your son. So he could provide a way for us, even us. The Gentiles who know nothing of Passover, who know nothing of the Old Testament requirements, and who have no deserving right to be a part of your kingdom. You made plan for us. But it must have come through Jerusalem. 
must have come as a, a fulfillment of the law. Help us to see that, Lord. Help us to see your word as, as life-giving. Help us to see your word as understanding who we are, and understanding our need for you and our utter dependence on our Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that I pray this morning. Amen. So starting in verse 13, we open with the Passover. And so what is the Passover? We're going to talk about that for just a moment because it's, it's helpful to understand the significance of the Passover in the life of the Jewish people. First of all, he says it's the Passover of the Jews. This is not open to all the nations. This is something specifically for Israel, specific to their history. And it would strike a chord in the mind of every Jew in those days because that was their identity. Not only their religious identity, but their cultural identity. And the Passover was this amazing feast. It was something that all the Jews would be expected to come to. Every male 13 years or older was required to come to this. So it was this big Passover feast, and then it was followed by the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. So it was basically a seven-day celebration in which all of Israel would come together to the temple, and they would worship God, and they would, and they would gather, and they would encourage one another, and they would sing psalms, and they would recount the history of how God pulled them out of Egypt. This was so ingrained in who they were, it could not have been separated from their life. You could mark your calendars by it every year around the beginning of April, end of March. They would come and take this journey to Jerusalem, no matter where they were, from different countries. Some of them even began speaking different languages. But they still had this common history. They would make their way into the Passover, and it was their cultural identity. They were to remind their children that we were in bondage, we were in slavery in Egypt. That Pharaoh ruled over us. And we had no hope. We had no future. But you sent this unlikely man, Moses, who was stammering in his words, who was unsure of himself. But you gave him the power of your mighty hand over Pharaoh. And through many signs and wonders, Pharaoh eventually let the people go because God took his life. Took all the lives of the armies of Egypt. And the Jews were never to forget that this is what God will do for his people. He will go to the length of bringing down the greatest nation that the world had known up until that point. Bring them to their knees so that his glory may be lifted up. This was why they came together for Passover. That is a God worth worshiping. That is a God worth remembering. And it was meant to be worship. And it was meant to be encouraging And humbling to every Jew to know that we were a part of that. That our history was a part of that. It was a great time of rejoicing and remembrance and worship. It happened every year and it was the greatest family reunion of all time. Until we come together as a family reunited in glory one day. And John mentions three Passovers in his gospel. That's important because... Again, you could set your watch by this. This is how we know how long Jesus' ministry was. Because we can trace the yearly festival cycle through Jesus' ministry. And so the third Passover we should be very familiar with. The third Passover is when Jesus gathers his disciples and puts them in the upper room. And Jesus did something that was pretty extraordinary. He actually broke the Passover ritual. There's a lot of things I can't go through now, and there's so many things I wish I could address, but I can't. 
But essentially in that Passover ritual, they were looking back to what God had done and they were to be looking forward to what would be fulfilled. Jesus, in their sight, was fulfilling all that the Passover was looking forward to. The spotless lamb, the flesh and the blood broken as a reminder of their own sin. And so the Passover for the Jews was looking back to what God did in Egypt. But the Lord's Supper, communion for the believer, is looking back to what Christ did on the cross. And also looking forward to our reunion that we will have with our brothers and sisters throughout all of history. The great already and not yet that we talk about so much. When Christ came to inaugurate his kingdom, those kingdom realities are true for us. But we are still waiting for their fulfillment. And so the Lord's Supper is a great time for believers to gather to remind us of what Christ did. Just like the Passover was to remind the Jews of what God did in Egypt. This Passover that was great for worship didn't remain that way. And every good story, as it does, has some tension. So this is where John places the tension in the story. Because this is Passover. This is a time of of worship and celebration. This is a good time. But it doesn't take long for us to get into verse 14. Just like humans, it doesn't take us long to mess things up. Verse 14. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So here's what you need to know about what's going on here. In the Passover, not only was this big, a big celebration, but there were Passover sacrifices that needed to be, to be brought into the temple. And they were required of each family and for specific sins and things like that. And of course, where there's an opportunity to make money, someone will make money off of it. And this became kind of a festival kind of atmosphere. And this became a house of merchandise or a den of robbers, as Jesus calls it in the other Gospels. It's kind of hard for us to imagine because most of us have never even seen what the temple would have looked like. I always imagine this kind of small temple, but this is actually a massive ground. I want to show you. It'll be up on the screen. So this is huge. To kind of put this in perspective, this is about almost a thousand foot square. This is kind of in the middle of Jerusalem. Herod built this so that the Jews would have a place to worship. And it was so sacred that not even Herod himself could step into the inner court of the temple. And so that big building in the middle you see, that is the holy place, and within it, the Holy of Holies. Just outside of that, you've got the court of the priests. Then outside of that, you've got the court of the women. Then inside that, I don't know if you can see it, there's a chest-high barrier just outside of, of the temple proper walls, and that was the inner court. So no one who is not a Jew could come within that court. So the court of the Gentiles is basically everything outside of those those little barriers. And the court of the Gentiles is massive. This is where this is going on. You imagine all of the money changers and all of of the animals and the sheep and the oxen. I don't know if any of you have ever been to a farm, but it's not the most sweet smelling place. You get a lot of animals together. It's not the most quiet place. So this time of Passover in the temple, God's very dwelling place, was meant to be a time of worship. But what do we get? Chaos. You imagine Jesus walking into this and seeing all this in front of him. Instead of an air of worship, you get the air of sheep and cows. You get an air of, of greedy hustlers. And instead of the sounds of praise, you get the sounds of animals. And you get the sounds of money changers. 
You know, all of us have been to events and sporting events, you know, the guys who are going up and down the stands, cold beer, like, can you imagine how many money changers and animal sellers are going to be yelling, trying to get attention to them? Come and buy what I have. This is what Jesus walks into expecting worship. So we've got those selling animals, and then we've got the, the money changers. Here's what you need to understand. As the Jews were spread out to different nations, every nation had their own currency, but only acceptable temple coins could be given for the offering. And so, of course, you've got a money changer who will take wherever your money comes from, whatever nation you reside in, and then change it out for temple currency for a small fee, of course. And we know when they get you there, there's always the added tax for waiting to the day of. And just like if you've ever been to a game, the $14 pretzel and the $13 beer, yes, those are real things. They get you while you're there. And they knew that these people had to make this, this pilgrimage. So these Gentiles that didn't come to worship would, would come to make money off of God's people. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who I'm sure got slid a little something to the side, they just let this, this go on. And Jesus was having nothing of it. And making a whip of cords in verse 15. He drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. So when we hear this whip of cords, I always thought like Indiana Jones. He thought he made this really cool whip that he was, that he was kind of thrashing around. But in the Greek, this word is a scourge. This is not something nice. It's not a cute whip. He was fastening it. And I'm just picturing Jesus boiling up this, this righteous anger at the worship that was distorted. And this was a device of, of torture. When they would give you 40 lashes, they did it with a scourge. And so he wound this together, and you imagine Jesus may have looked like a madman to them, driving out all these peddlers from the Gentile court of of the temple. When the Son of God comes with a scourge, you're in trouble. One day he's going to come back with a sword, and you're really in trouble if you're not his. It brings new meaning to putting the fear of God into him. Because the sacrificial lamb of of the Passover came to the feast. But he didn't come bringing a dish. He came bringing a whip. Revelation 16 tells us that all the people in all the earth are going to cower at the wrath of the lamb. This is just a little inkling of the wrath of the lamb poured out against unrighteousness. We like the Jesus of healing and mercy. And we should. We love servant Jesus. We love Jesus who washes his disciples' feet. We love the Jesus who teaches and loves those who come to him. For many of us, the Jesus of righteous judgment and righteous anger kind of makes us a little bit uncomfortable. This is not the Jesus I signed up for. This is who he is. We can't escape this. This is what happens when you make worship self-serving. This is what happens when worship becomes anything but lifting God up to glorify his name for who he is and what he has done. So he drives them out with with the whip. Uh, He pours out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. There's an interesting detail about the pigeons. Amazing thing is that Jesus didn't want worship distorted, but he's not a destroyer either. Because if he would have set all these pigeons free, these, these people would have lost their li- livelihood. He didn't destroy any of these animals. He said, take these pigeons who are in cages. Take them out of here. And so he left their businesses intact, but he just wanted to reform worship. 
His concern was what happened inside the temple. I don't care what you do with the rest of your livelihood. Don't do it in my father's house. And he's particular here. My father's house. He didn't say our father's house. Later, he said that to the disciples. Because someone who uses the worship of God for their own selfish desires has no share with the son of God. My father's house. He was protective of his father's house. He was possessive of it. This is a place of worship. Look what you wicked people have done to my father's house. The very dwelling place of God. And then his disciples who were great Old Testament students remembered, verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. He was so burdened with the worship of his father. That it consumed him. This word in the Greek means to eat until you're full till you're going to burst. It consumed him. He's quoting Psalm 69.9 here. They knew their Old Testament. Jesus in their very sight was fulfilling the scriptures over and over and over again. And he came to restore proper worship to God's house. He came to give God the glory and worship that he truly deserves. He came to usher in a time of worship in spirit and in truth. Uh, Turn over one more page in your Bible to me. I'm going to give you a preview from a couple weeks in in John chapter 4. Look at verse 21. We're actually going to spend a couple weeks on this text. When Jesus uh, meets the Samaritan woman, she knows her Old Testament too because she's half Jewish. Verse 21, he says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must Worship in spirit and truth. This is what Jesus had in mind. The purpose is not the temple, but the building. God is seeking a people to worship him in spirit and truth. He is zealous for worship. He is zealous for the glory of his father. People who are worshiping him for who he is. And again, many people do not like this Jesus. They do not like this Jesus who flipped over tables and has a scourge. People ask me, like, why do you get so worked up up here? Why do you get so, so passionate and yell and, and sweat? I sweat all the time. It just it happens. But I get worked up because Jesus did. Do you? When you see God's worship distorted, as it is very often in our culture, does it break your heart? Does it bring a righteous anger? Not zealousness for your own pride or your own idea of things or your own comfort. But does it bring zealousness for the house of the Lord? People ask, why don't we do things here like Easter egg hunts and Santa Claus and things like that? Because I don't want Jesus to turn over our tables. I don't want things that are going to distract from the worship and the glory of God. We have the creator of the universe. We have God dwelt among us. Why do we need gimmicks? Why do we need distractions to get people in the door so we can leave them in this shallow Christianity? Is not worshiping of God, 
but it is glorifying man. John Calvin has this quote that I love. He says, a dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet would remain silent. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is being attacked and remain silent. So I have a real question, a practical question for you. What tables would Jesus turn over in our culture today? Anything come to mind? You ever think of that? When you see pastors exalting themselves, this pastor worship, there are pastors who have their own bobbleheads. You can't make this up. Their own coloring books with their faces on it. Drives me nuts. Guys are smiling, trying to build something around their own personality instead of giving God the glory he deserves. What other tables would Jesus turn over? Gimmicks? Fog machines? Don't worry about the donut table. He won't turn those over. I think, I think the donuts are fine. Some of you border on worshiping donuts, but as long as you don't get to that point, I think the donuts will be all right. We've got all these things that can get in the way of worship in our culture. And I'll tell you, I am saddened many times when I see what worship looks like in many churches. It's like the scripture is not enough. We need to entertain you. You need backflips and parades and laser shows because God is not good enough. But thankfully, we serve a God who is good and he is good all the time. Amen. Now, here's an even more real question. What tables would Jesus turn over in your heart? What tables have you set up in your heart that has made worship of God about you? What things in your life, what selfish desires have made God less and have exalted you? Made worship of the creator of the universe about what makes you comfortable or what will be to your benefit? Maybe it's just me who struggles with that. But that's a very real question because if Jesus is this zealous for the worship in his house, how zealous will, be, will he be for our hearts when we come here? Is God your piggy bank? Maybe a magic lamp. If you, you, know, you come to him and just, just rub it when, when you need something. Or is he another box to check off going through the daily trials of your life? Or just maybe a way to, to look spiritual in front of others? Or maybe you're trying to atone for your own shame and your own guilt by being righteous in your own eyes. We are here to worship. Like the Passover in the temple, we're here to remember what God has done. Remember what he is doing. To be reminded that he sent his son because he loves us. To be reminded that he will send his son again because he loves us and he doesn't want us to remain here. But he also is a righteous judge who will never leave a sin unpunished. And the sad thing is that the Jews were more concerned with the ritual and the history and the tradition. They weren't really concerned with worship. You can see that by their response. How do they respond in verse 18? Yes, we're still in the text. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? This is the equivalent of, of, of prove it. Prove your authority to us. Who died and made you boss? Jesus will show him in a moment. 
They missed the sign. Malachi 3 says that the Lord himself will come into his temple. Malachi 3 is about restoring worship, restoring God the attention he deserves and the, and the, the, the giving and the offering that he deserves. The Lord himself will come into his temple. Paul catches on to this. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Just a couple of books to the right if you're not familiar with your Bible. Uh, excuse me, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 22. Remember the Jews said, what sign do you show us? Paul knew the hearts of the Jews. He said, for Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The Jews seek signs. But to us who are in Christ, Christ is the wisdom of God and the power of God. The Gentiles wanted ideas. We have some of those in our culture who seek ideas. We have some of those who are still seeking signs. Jesus knew the wickedness of their heart. And in Matthew, he calls them a wicked generation because of the signs that they're asking. What sign do you show us? Prove it to me. His response is genius as it always is. His response is his proof. His response is his authority. Back in John, look how he responds in verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. And Jesus rarely answers them directly. Jesus rarely gives them the response that they think they deserve. Jesus tells them what they need to hear. What sign do you show us? You want a sign? I've got a sign. And as Deshaun said last week, his time had not yet come. There would be a time when he would show them the sign to end all signs. And as believers, this is the only sign that we need. Christ was dead in the grave for three days so that no one could be confused. And he was raised to life by the power of God. Paul says we preach Christ and Christ crucified, and that is what we do. And we will continue to do until he comes again, because that is the only sign we need. Because if Jesus himself can multiply the, the, the loaves and the fishes, if Jesus himself can open the eyes of the blind, if Jesus himself can walk on water and they still don't get it, what kind of sign could we provide? But we have the gospel, the ultimate sign. They didn't know what they were asking, but Jesus told them, this is the sign to end all signs. I will raise myself from the dead. And under what authority? He says this. Destroy this temple and in three days, I will raise it up. You will destroy this temple. You will kill me. But in my power, I will raise this temple up. This is the first of many predictions of the resurrection in John's gospel. And in hindsight, John must have been like, man, we really missed it. Because Jesus had been saying this all along. Then the Jews, of course, hard, as heart, heart, heart of hearts. Um, you know, how many times do, do we have to hear the answer and say, well, I got another question. I'm giving you the answer. I've got another question. Look at how they respond in verse 20. The Jews said to him, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you will raise it up in three days. Aha, I'll show you. You know, it's, they, they're always obsessed with, with, with the here and now. Look at this grand temple. Look what Herod made. It took us 46 years to get that built. Who do you think you are? John is a great teacher. John has, there should be a little parentheses here, because John just says, Psst. 
he's speaking about the temple of his body, not this temple. Um, you would miss this in, in English, but I think it's helpful to see. The, the Greek actually uses two words for, for temple here. When Jesus walks in, in the physical temple, there's a general term for the, for the temple. Aeron uh, in, in the Greek is the, is the, is the general word for, for temple. But when Jesus uses the word for temple, he uses uh, naos, which is about the... Uh, so so the, the, the first general term is about just a, a temple structure, the general temple grounds. But the one Jesus uses is about the holiness of the temple. So Jesus uses a, a same word that would be understood as the holiness of, the, of this temple. You're talking about a physical temple, but I'm talking about the real temple, the real presence of God, the real sanctuary. I will raise that temple up. So here's something I want you to consider. See what Jesus is, is doing here. We've only been in John a few weeks or a few months or whatever it has been. The word became flesh. And it tabernacled, it dwelled among us. The tabernacle was replaced by the temple. His body is not a temple, but the temple. This temple, referring to the temple in his own body. The very holy of holies, the very dwelling place of God. God coming down to earth, God dwelling with man. That temple is what he's referring to. And that temple they were going to seek to destroy. God's very temple the real temple, the real sanctuary of God, walks into a place that was supposed to be a place of worship and finds it defiled. And to take it a step further, that temple that they were so closely guarding would be destroyed in 70 AD. John is writing shortly after the destruction of the temple. So these, these details are important because they were seeing the temple as this, this great uh, center of, of, of worship. But when they, they missed that the center of the temple was the Holy of Holies, God's very presence. They were coming to a building. They weren't coming to the presence of God. But as we see at the end of the scriptures, fast forward to Revelation 22. 21, 22, one of those. Um, the heavenly Jerusalem, the temple come down to earth. There is no building. It is Christ, our Lord. And so the temple that he was cleansing, he was preparing for his own coming. He was trying to direct worship away from a a building and empty religion to a people who would worship in spirit and truth, to worship him as the temple of God. And again, hindsight is 20-20 with these disciples, verse 22. When therefore he had raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. John is concerned with if we believe. Just like the disciples did. Their disciples remembered, oh yeah, Jesus talked about that three years ago. He was right. And they look back. When he raised himself from the dead, he completed the work of restoring worship. What does that mean? That means that we no longer need a mediator. We no, no, we no longer need sacrifices. We no longer need to come before some earthly figure to bring us before God. Our new mediator is Christ himself. Worship is how worship was intended because we could go directly before him because he sent his spirit to dwell within us and we become temples of the Holy Spirit who worship with Christ as our mediator going right before the throne of the Father. This is worship as it should be. This could only happen with Christ dying on the cross and raising himself back to life. This is Christ's concern. He wanted to raise up worshipers, worshipers of 
the risen Savior. The amazing thing for us is that we no longer have to travel to Jerusalem. Because Hebrews 12 tells us that we are citizens in Christ of the heavenly Jerusalem. Already citizens of that heavenly Jerusalem. We don't have to travel anywhere. We are there. We are citizens of his kingdom wherever we are because of our faith in Jesus Christ, the one who rose himself from the dead on the third day. And so Jerusalem will one day be restored, like our bodies will be restored and like the earth will be restored. But right now, we are the Israelites and we are the temple of the Holy Spirit and our lives are to be in worship to the glory of God through the name of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. If Jesus was that convicted about worship then, how was he convicted about worship now? And how convicted about worship should we be? These next few verses I'm going to address uh, next week. Verses 23 through, 20, through 25. Because uh, I think it, it helps introduce chapter 3 better. But I want to conclude with a couple of questions. There's so much I wish I could go into here. We could spend a week talking about all of the, the layers of symbolism among the, the Passover in, in the temple. But if we get to the heart of it, why is this important? Why is this passage important? Someone asks you, what does the cleansing of the temple mean? Jesus came to reform worship, to bring worship back to God for who he is and what he has done. It's about redirecting worship from just an act of man to the glory of God. I want to leave you with a few questions. How do you worship? You go through the motions. You worship God in spirit and truth. Who do you worship? Everybody worships something. Everybody ascribes worth to something and gives them value by giving them their, their time, their energy, and their treasures. Who do you worship? And you go to the true temple. You come before the temple that will never be destroyed. Who raised himself up. In him, we find our peace, our security, our identity, like Deshaun talked about earlier. We can, find, we can look for our identity in all these other things, and we can be without a face. We could come before the one who knows us and knows our sin, still went to the cross for us anyway. Do you believe? Do you believe like John's desire for in, in his gospel for us to believe? Do you believe in the risen Christ? Or are you waiting for more evidence or, or more signs like the Jews? What else have you got? Or is your identity just being in a religious group? I call myself this because I've always been Christian. I've always gone to church. Is this just Another tradition. Or do you truly know the risen Savior? Do you believe in him? And my urge here to you is if you are in Christ, seek your heart and think about why you worship and why you gather. And if you don't know Christ, seek your heart and ask him, what do I worship? What do I put above you? What do I value above all else? And I would implore you, To worship the God who made you and who raised Jesus from the dead. 
Worship him in spirit and truth. And in that, we become true Israel. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder what you have done in the lives of your people throughout history. Thank you that you did not leave us in our own slavery to sin. Thank you that you sent your son to redeem us. From slavery into a life and and one in abundance in you. And out of that abundance that we we have received through Christ, let us worship you with everything that we are and everything that we have. Let us come before you because you are full of glory. You are worthy of all of our honor and praise. Let our hearts be joyful and a pleasant, sweet-smelling aroma before your throne. Let us be people who you find delight in that will one day hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And Lord, to those who do not know you this morning, I just pray for your spirit to turn their hearts, to come within them, to make them a temple for your dwelling, to turn them into worshipers of you instead of worshipers of self and the world. Open their eyes, give them hope, give them future, give them an identity. Give them the love that you have poured out and lavished on us, even though we didn't deserve it. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that because of Christ, we can now live and walk in him as worshipers and citizens of the new Jerusalem. In his name we pray. Amen.